the next episode on Researcher Revealed. This is episode nine. And on today's episode, uh, we get to, I get to introduce you to a friend of mine who's been doing research in spinal cord injury for quite a long time, since I knew her back in my University of Toronto years. I don't want to say when, but you can find out by looking at my LinkedIn CV. Um, she joins us to share about her journey into research, as well as a bit of an introduction into what she's doing her research on. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the next episode in the Researcher Revealed podcast, the podcast where we go beyond just a name on a paper or publication and get to know the person who's doing the research behind it. Today, I'm very excited because I have joining me a friend from the very beginning of my research journey, Anita Kaiser. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, please. Hi, everyone. My name is Anita Kaiser. I'm joining you from Toronto, Canada. Uh, I am a PhD student. I'm in my final year at the University of Toronto uh, in the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute. And uh, I'm studying in the field of activity-based therapy. Ooh, oh, I can't wait to dive into that and find out more about your research. Um, before we do, um, this is now episode nine, so everybody should be getting used to it. Before we get into the really good stuff, we just get to know you a little bit better by doing what I call the rapid 11. Just 11 quick questions about nothing too personal, just about you and how you work, if that's okay. Absolutely. Perfect, question number one. Are you a Windows or Mac user? Windows. Okay. And do you drink tea or coffee? So kind of currently neither. I'm more of a hot water with fresh ginger. But if I do, it would be tea and it would be peppermint tea would be my go-to. Oh, nice. I like it. Ginger and hot water. I might have to try that. Um, when you write, do you have music or silence? Oh, so... So I have a few, so I do listen to music often, but if it's busy work, I have like a certain go-to playlist. Okay. And then if it's writing, I do more of like this, um, it's like an ambiance. I sort of flutter between a few different things, but sort of sounds like a ambiance or like a spiritual. Um, it could be like almost like, you know, like rain um, or like uh, these, like, you know, I don't know, uh, like meditation music. type <laughs> music. Yeah, but like instrumental Celtic okay. music. So I do sort of a variation, but sometimes I even find that distracting and I just got to shut it right off. <laughs> Fair enough. I like it. Different different music and for different sorts of activities. Or like lo I like that. Uh, Lofi Beats is like another one that I'll listen to, oh, but that's also yeah. more of more of like the busy work type of yeah. music. Nice, very cool. And do you tend to work at home or in an office? So I am in my home office, which has been my COVID uh, happy place. <laughs> um, and I've gotten very used to it. I do have a place at work that I could go to, but I mean, the convenience, you know, mm. the, the time factor of not having to commute. Um, definitely been easier to work from home. Definitely. So it's been definitely. predominantly my place, yeah. 
Nice. Um, and what time of day are you most productive? Are you a morning or evening person? So again, I think it depends. Like I feel I'm very productive in the morning, but it's more okay. of the busy work and meetings. Um, oh, okay. I tend to do my writing at night. Oh, okay. Like uh, after dinner night? Yes. Okay, nice. Like evenings, okay. yeah. Um, what is your favorite referencing manager slash system? I don't really have one, but I have Zotero on my computer that is sitting there waiting for me to learn the training that I'm definitely going to need when I start doing my dissertation in about a month. So that is probably going to be my go-to. Okay, fair enough. Well, well, good, good news is I recently started learning Zotero and it's actually easier than EndNote. Um, it doesn't have the same functionality, but you'll be fine with it. So that's what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. It's quick and easy. All you have to do is like copy and paste like the URL for the paper in and it does everything by magic. So it's it's good. Um, right. Next question. Favorite data visualization tool. Like so how do you make your graphs or your figures or stuff like that? Oh, you know, I'm not fancy. Honestly, it's like if I'm doing a PowerPoint presentation, mm -hmm. then I'm using PowerPoint. So yeah. if I'm in Word, I'm using Word like I'm not. I haven't really ventured into any of the other and I haven't had to do super elaborate okay. graphs and, and pictures. So yeah, I've been basic, but that, you know what, that might be my next project after I finish graduating is Ooh. looking into that kind of stuff. Cause I think it's, um, it would be a great tool to have when you're trying yeah. to work on, you know, doing things like infographics and, yep. you know, ways of getting your research out. So that will be on my to-do list. If you've got recommendations, I'm all for it. Oh, I'll have a think. And if I think of anything or I see anything, I'll definitely send it your way. The thing I, the top tip that I found, so especially doing qualitative style research, um, when you come to like sort of doing like mind maps or like flow charts, there's an open source program called um, Draw.io draw.io okay. and it's kind of like you know how you can do like a flow chart in powerpoint with the arrows and the boxes but it never like your arrows never behave and like it you spend a lot of time like banging your head on a brick wall going like i hate this um draw.io makes it so much easier to use and it's open source so it's free it's it's really really good i'll, I'll pop a link in the description but i'll send it to you privately as well <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. This is a really good and easy program to use. Um, next question, getting on to the more important in question. What is your favorite desk snack? Ooh, mixed nuts. Ooh. Now, that I have is, to know. That's my go-to. Plain, salted flavors? Mix it up? Salted. Okay. Salted. And I have this one particular go-to that I have, and it's got like Brazil nuts, macadamia nuts, cashews almonds and pecans oh that sounds so and that's good my I'm, favorite yeah i'm so hungry right yeah. now it's the end of the day here in uk and i'm like oh tea time my i should have brought a snack. snack yeah um 
Excellent. We're almost there. When you're like planning and organizing, so anything from like sorting out your work schedule to planning and organizing your research or analysis, um, are you a digital planner or a paper, pen and paper? Um, I'd say I've definitely migrated over to digital. I definitely find it easier and better. But in terms of organizing schedule, I still work half on a calendar and half digital because I, I have like, I, yeah, that one's kind of like a hybrid because the calendar's also got all the family stuff on it. Yeah. So you can kind of make sure that you don't have things clashing. And yeah. then my work desktop calendar has like all my meetings and all that kind of stuff in it. Okay. So for your organization tool that you use digitally, what do you use? Because I'm looking at converting. So I'm looking for top tips there. For like organizing your work and what you're doing and how to do oh, stuff. And you know what? I actually just have, I just use Word and I just okay. literally have like a task list and ah. I group it into like sections based on, uh, you know, because I'm involved in different projects. So there's my yeah. own project and then there's other things I work on. And then I'll like, I have a, like a color coding system for priority. What's got to do what I'm doing now and then yeah. what's like, next on the list and yeah so it's like this whole elaborate word document <laughs> sounds intriguing um very cool thank you um second last question what book are you currently reading oh i don't recall the title offhand the author is janine frost i believe um so my reading is like bedtime reading and yeah. it's my escapism. It's my way to like kind of erase work off my brain. So I'm not like busy brain all night long. Um, so like my my genres are really my go to genres, I'd say, is like dystopian books and like fantasy books. Oh. Those are like my favorites. But I I'll, I'll like read other stuff as well. But those yeah. are like my favorite go to's. So this is sort of like in that fantasy realm, I would say. And it's a mix of fantasy adventure romance um not really maybe a tiny bit of mystery uh okay. suspense but okay yeah. I'll chase you up for the title later I'll let you look and you can you can s send it to me in the email because I want to put that in the description I'm kind of creating like um an unofficial like bookshelf of what researchers read and it's really interesting to see like so many people like you um complete escapism and like off to sci-fi world and then other people make me kind of think inspire me to read less sci-fi because I'm like you I'm a sci-fi fiction reader <laughs> because you know, they're I'm reading so such interesting amazed. books but I'm just like oh my brain just needs to switch off it, that's me and I'm amazed when I hear people that that are reading like it, it's almost like textbooks or like you know self-help books and things like that I'm like yeah. I can't read like something that requires your brain to like really work like at like midnight <laughs> <laughs> like I need just something that just relaxed reading, easy reading, yeah. Yeah. a fun story yeah. that will just put me into la la land. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still with you there. Right. Last question, Anita. Um, who is a researcher who you admire? Oh my goodness. I have to pick one. Well, no, you don't have to limit it to one, but like just a 
researchers that so, you admire? Honestly, I, I so I have to pick my supervisor, uh, really first and foremost because who is Dr. Kristen Musselman. Okay. Um. So I chose her obviously because she she is specializing in the field that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um. But I'm I've been so um grateful to have her mentor me because she's so um she's so skilled at it in terms of explaining things and like even mm-hmm. like you know editing your work like explaining why she's editing things a certain way um okay. so it's really really great to learn off of her and also um you know, the way she has her life organized, she's been able to uh, carve out, you know, uh, a work schedule that mm-hmm. really sort of balances that work family life. Okay. And I really admire her for that. She's very, she, you know, she's very efficient and, and, you know, has like a huge amount of work on her plate, yet still yeah. manages to carve out the family time. So, I feel oh, like out of all the people, especially model. in the research world, yeah. she's really figured that work-life balance better wow. than anyone I know. <laughs> wow. She sounds like somebody I need to learn from. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very cool. Thank you so much for that. They told you they wouldn't be too scary. They're just a little bit of fun, just getting to know you a little bit more. Um, now, speaking of getting to know you, I know you quite well. Um, but for everybody here, um, can you share a little bit with your journey and how you ended up um, doing your PhD on physical activity-based rehabilitation? Sure. Um, I think I know where you're getting at. So maybe I will like back, back, back up and sort of give people an idea of where I started and how I fell into this area. Um, so I had completed um, a bachelor's degree in applied chemistry and biology um, wow. years ago, back in 1996, um, at, at um, it's now called uh, Toronto Metropolitan University at the time mm-hmm. it was Ryerson University. Oh, okay. um, and my intention was to take a year off and I was sort of deciding between um, optometry, chiropractics, natural medicine, um, oh, what were that? Physical therapy and occupational therapy. Okay. Those yep. five things. So I thought I'd take a year off, make a decision and reapply and get back to school because originally I was sort of looking at getting into like pharmaceuticals or yeah. maybe the cosmetics industry and do R&D and realized towards the end that I didn't really want to work in a lab. I would rather work more with people, but still in the healthcare system. Um, so, so that was the plan, but three months after I graduated, I ended up in a car crash with my twin sister and I had a spinal cord injury. So I actually spent um, six weeks in an acute care hospital, three weeks in intensive care, followed by one year in rehabilitation, literally trying to relearn everything again. So I broke my neck. Um, so I am a quadriplegic, uh, and, and it was um, a complete injury. So for people who don't know what that is, it's almost as though you severed your spinal cord. And so anything like basically from like my chest down, I have no 
sensation, no movement, and only like some, you know, a little bit of movement in a couple of fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my function in my arms, but um, the fine dexterity is is sort of lacking. So, so really, it was a whole year of rehab of trying to learn wow. how to, you know, feed yourself, bathe yourself, yeah. sit up in a chair, um, you know, learning to wheel and dress yourself, and all those basic, you know, life things that everyone mm. takes for granted. Um, so once I finally left rehab a year later, I was sort of like sitting there going, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Mm. Um, funny enough, you know, while I was in there, I thought, you know, I would have really liked to have been a physiotherapist. <laughs> and I kept joking saying, you know, I'm here, I'm doing my practical and I'll go yeah. back to school and do the theory later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, I never ended up doing that, though, exactly. But I mean, I I I found out about different organizations that do spinal cord injury research um, Mm -hmm. and and got involved with them, like the Canadian Spinal Research Organization, Um, also got involved with Spinal Cord Injury Ontario, whose mission is really about improving the quality of life for people with spinal cord injuries. Yeah. and then a few couple of years later, I heard about a research um, assistant position that opened up at the rehab hospital um, with Dr. Kathy Craven. And I decided to apply and I got the position. So I started working as a research assistant um, at, at, it was at Toronto Rehab, University yeah. Health Network. Um, and it's a Lindhurst hospital, was a spinal cord rehab hospital. Um, so started working there for a few years and decided that I wanted to take a more active role in research and decided to apply um, back to university and to do my master's degree. So I did a master's in rehabilitation science at U of T and um, I had to think of a topic and I wasn't really sure. I had a lot of ideas, um, but the best advice I got was um, someone told me pick something that you're going to be really interested in and you're not going to get sick of, you know, after three, like a few years. Yeah. Um, and I had a girlfriend, she was my roommate in the hospital, mm-hmm. um, who got married shortly after discharge Okay. and she ended up having a baby and she had moved away, but I, she came to visit and, um, and so, and her daughter was about maybe one and a half, two years old, I think Yeah. at the time. And I was amazed with the way she was. So what was really interesting is we were both almost identical levels of injury. So I had a a C6-7 spinal cord injury, and so did she. But the difference between us was she had some sensation below her level of injury, whereas I didn't. But other than that, we were almost identical in terms of movement and function and ability. So to see her with her daughter and how Mm. she was caring for her with limited hand function, you know, and, and, you know, a full-time wheelchair user, I was so amazed. And it really got me thinking, you know, I'd love to like study this and learn about how are other people, how are people in wheelchairs, how are people with spinal cord injury caring for their young children? What assisted devices are they using? What adaptive aids or adaptive techniques are they using that helps them to take care of their children? Um, so that was my my research for my master's degree. It was really focused on parenting with a spinal cord injury and really looking at the assistive devices and adaptations for that. 
well, that was really fun. And what was more, what was even better, it was sort of like a uh, an added bonus is I thought this is great background research for me, right? Because I got my wheels turning about wanting to go down that road as well. And yeah. um, I got, um, I ended up getting pregnant in my final year of my master's, mm-hmm. um, literally cut it right down to the wire. So I, I basically defended my thesis, handed it in, went into the hospital, I think a week or so later, and then had my daughter two weeks after that. So it was I didn't like, realize the timing was so tight. That's it was really tight. Yeah. I mean, she came five weeks early. So, mm. um, you know, I should have had a bit more time, but, but anyways, it, thank, thankfully it all worked out. Um, mm. And so all my research was such great background information for me mm. because I got all this wealth of information from the parents. It was like a mixed method study. So it was qualitative. Okay. Plus I did a survey so I could get a, a good understanding of the assistive devices they used and, mm-hmm. and how they rated them. Um, okay. um, but it was great background information for me in terms mm. of, you know, learning some of the different things. And, you know, it saved me a lot of time trying to figure things out on my own um, because I was able to use that information to help me to care for her. Oh, that sounds so fascinating. And is, is that research publicly available or did that people have to fund your master's dissertation? Did you uh, publish no, I any do. of it? I did. I actually published a paper and I actually published a chapter in a book. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so that was um, great. And it actually got, it actually got a lot of media attention. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, there was a two week spread in the Toronto star. I think nice. it's one of those feel good stories. So because, yeah. you know, it was a woman in a wheelchair who just had a baby doing research about parenting with a child. So it was just one of those great news articles. Yeah. So it, it caught a lot of attention that got picked up by other newspapers um, across Canada and on websites and blogs and that sort of thing. So that was, um, that was really great. It was, it was great, uh, great way to get the word out. And then, so, you know, after, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, before you tell us about your transition from master's to PhD, um, I want to pick a little bit on why why research. So you had your background in chemistry and biology. And even when you were thinking about possibilities of what you would do with your life before your accident, you were still thinking about research then. So why why research? I mean, I can understand why you got much more passionate about it after your accident and the the lack of information that you encountered yourself around issues that were important to you. But, you know, before all of that, why, why research? I don't know. I've always been interested in research. Like even, like I said, like when I was doing my undergrad, I was always like at that time when I was doing um, the basic science and thinking about like either the cosmetics or the pharmaceutical industry, it was always the intent was to go into the R&D lab, the research and development. Okay. So I just always had that. I just always felt like it would be an exciting job where you're always going to be working on something new and different. It's not like that monotonous day in and day out. Um, So it's just, it's always been something that interested me. And I think even if I did make a decision to go into like uh, physical therapy, um, I would probably do a a hybrid of a clinician scientist. Um, Because I always have that, I've always had that passion for, um, learning something new mm-hmm. and how can we, how we could improve practice and, and, you know, bring in new treatments, new therapies and that sort of thing. So, 
always sort of that that passion of mine. Okay, thank you. Now, transition. Masters, you were like a mum of a new premature baby and you're going, eh, I'm bored. Let's do a PhD or was there a bit of a break? There was definitely a break. I was actually I was actually in my final year enrolled in the in a hybrid master's PhD because I was planning to roll straight into uh, okay. a PhD yeah. and continue that line of parenting um, with a spinal cord injury. But I realized after the baby was born that it was it was too much, you know, like I can only handle so much. And yeah. and I knew how much time the master's took because um, yeah. even still I was working while I was doing my master's. So it took me four years instead of two. But yeah. I felt like I was doing full time, full time school and full time work, you know, like juggling. And I thought if I go back, I'm going to miss her whole childhood, you know. Mm. And so I sort of made okay. that and I thought school, you can kind of do it at any time. But kids are only little once. Yeah. So I made I made that decision um, and I sort of stepped back from from school. Like I, I still stayed connected with work, but just more like with committees um, and that sort of thing, but not like on a daily basis and um, just enjoyed like the first several years of her life. Um, nice. And, yeah. So it wasn't until she went back to, until she started kindergarten, mm-hmm. then I started getting back into work a bit more and, and got back into the hospital and, and working with Dr. Um, Craven and as a research assistant again. And it was a few years after that, that I was at a fundraising event and um, a lady approached me and um, told me about this um, this outpatient, uh, not not even an outpatient clinic. It's more, it's it's like um, a center that she ran um, just north of Toronto um, that was providing this unique type of therapy that was different from the therapy that I received as a patient when I was in rehab and. Um, it was called activity-based therapy. So that was the first I ever heard of it. And so I was curious, um, mm-hmm. didn't really know much about it, but I said, okay, I'll come up to your facility and have a look and see what it's all about. Um, so for people who don't know, activity-based therapy yeah. is really focused on um, promoting neurorecovery um, okay. by activating the neuromuscular system below the level of injury um, mm-hmm. and and really trying to, um, target functional recovery in okay. in those paralyzed muscles. Yeah. Um, and so, and that's quite different from the rehab that that we're generally providing in in the rehab centers, which is really more focused on, um, you know, they're basically assessing an individual mm-hmm. um, level of injury. So they'll they'll take into consideration what the person's level of injury is how severe their injury is. So whether it's a complete or incomplete injury yeah. and based on that, they will create um, a program of rehab for that person that will, depending on what their injury is. So if it is incomplete, they be, they will be working on trying to regain some function. Mm-hmm. But for someone like me who has a complete injury, it's really about trying to compensate. So more, for, more based on like, maximizing what you are able to do rather than trying to focus on um, wiggling your toes again. Right. So it'd be really focused on strengthening the muscles above the level of injury, um, doing passive stretching of the muscles below, and then just trying to make you independent in your activities of daily living using things like 
you know, a wheelchair, um, you know, a adaptive aids, you know, to compensate for loss of hand functions, you know, adaptations yeah. to, um, you know, like, let's say for writing, uh, like a writing splint or, you know, special devices to hold your toothbrush or hairbrush, yeah. um, a transfer board to transfer in and out of your wheelchair. So it's like compensating for all the things you can't do rather than really focused on trying to activate those muscles below your level of injury to okay. regain that function back. So that's and really the big new difference. type of rehab that you're now doing your PhD on, that does the opposite of that. So that's actually now encouraging or trying to help you activate those muscles below the level of your injury, right? Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's activity-based therapy. So, so I was, you know, so for me, I grew up under that belief that the spinal cord doesn't regenerate. And yeah. so my injury is permanent um, and, and, you know, unchangeable. And I've been very stable for, so this is already now almost 15 years post injury for me. So I'd been very neurologically stable, no change in function, no recovery. So I was mm -hmm. kind of like very skeptical, but I was open-minded. I thought, okay. let's see what it's all about. So when I went up there, it looked really interesting what they were doing. And I decided to start, uh, I decided to enroll myself into their therapy and okay. um, see what it would be like. Now, the therapy that they do is really intensive. They generally mm -hmm. recommend about three to five times a week and about oh. two to two to anywhere from two to four or five hours a day. It's wow. very intensive. Um, for me, if, if you really want to get like really good results. But mm -hmm. I was busy. I was working again. So I committed to once a week for three hours. So I did okay. one day a week, super intensive. Yeah. Um, so it's literally like boot camp in a way, in that <laughs> sense, for that one day. Um, but you know what? When I started working out, I was blown away. For the first time in 15 years, I started, like I could literally see from week to week, a progression in what oh. I was what I was doing. And it was strengthening both above level of injury, but it was actually activating muscles below level of injury. Um, and you know what I'll do is I'll send you a link to my YouTube channel because okay, I've got, um, I've got videos on there where you can actually see some of the progressions that I've made. Um, oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. But I, I, I couldn't believe like all of a sudden now I started like regaining functions in like abdominal muscles in some of my leg muscles. Wow. So I was working, you know, I'll give you an example. Like, you know, when I first started standing up um, at their center, I can only tolerate standing for about five minutes at a time because my blood pressure would tank. And that was like wearing an abdominal binder. But within like several months, I quickly progressed to being able to stand for about 45 minutes without an abdominal binder. Wow. And then I would start doing exercises and standing, like simple things initially, like just like, you know, oblique crunches and pelvic tilts. But then I would start working on what I called vertical planking, where they would take their, so when I'm standing, I'm standing holding on to like, a, think of like almost like a parallel bar or like a ballet yeah, yeah. bar, yeah. right? The therapist in front of me, so I'm, my hands are strapped to the bar because I don't have enough finger function to grab yeah. it. They're holding my hips and mm -hmm. they have my knees locked out and my feet are secure. So I'm yeah. being su supported at the hips, knees, and feet. Okay. So they would take their hands off my hips, and I would sit, stand there and try to support my body staying vertical without 
kind of buckling right at the hip, right? And that's where I call vertical planking. And so initially it was like a few seconds and then Mm -hmm. I would lose it. And we quickly progressed up to like about a minute. Then we would start doing perturbations, which perturbations is like when they're actually pushing against your hip from side to side or like pushing against your hip to unlock it. And I would be able to hold it. So I was definitely regaining some sort of trunk strength and mobility. So then we started working on mini squats and the mini squats got deeper and deeper. And originally it would always be like with therapist assistant. And then as I got stronger, we would start reducing. So it's almost, if you think of like a balance scale, like initially be the therapist doing a lot of the work and me doing maybe five to 10%. But then as I got stronger, the therapist would be doing less and I'd be doing more until I got independent in it. So we would work towards like mini squats and then eventually to sit to stand from an elevated height and then slowly working down till it's more of like a seated height. But I mean, I'm describing this, this is over like, you know, a few years, right? It does (laughs) take time, but, but it was happening. Right. Wow. And it made me, so as I was progressing, and that's just one example, right? But mm-hmm. we worked also on working towards getting up into high kneeling. I worked towards um, getting up into four point and then to crawling. So, but these are over like, again, like over like several yeah. years. Um, but it made me wonder, I started getting all these ideas in my head of like, does everybody recover to this extent? What if it was someone who's newly injured? Would mm. they have recovered faster? Does someone with an incomplete injury recover faster and to a greater extent than someone with a complete injury? Or what about yeah. if someone's higher versus a lower level injury or yeah. older versus a younger person? You know, there's so many variables that could be at play. And so that's what really inspired me to want to go back to school to do a PhD because I realized that we need data to first prove that this is really um, superior to conventional rehab yeah. and we don't have any tools that are exist right now in order to capture this data in order to know, you know, is it really better and are there certain exercises that are better than others and mm. what's the dosage that we need to be doing it at? Because, you know, like I said in the beginning, it was always uh, described as an intensive program where you need to do a minimum three to five times a week for at least, you know, two to four hours a day. But I was going only once a week for three hours and I was getting these results. So what dosage is it that we really need in order to maximize recovery? So, so like I said, there's no tools that exist. So my research is really focused on developing a tracking tool so we can start collecting all this data so we can answer some of these questions and get, get a sense of, which of the exercises are really the key ones and what's the dosage that we need to do? And does that dosage vary depending on the level and the severity of injury of the person or, you know, whether it's sorry, whether it's a new injury or a chronic injury? Wow, that's fascinating. Like what an incredible like, story and how inspiring that you're taking um, the thing that just hit me, just as you were saying that last little bit, you're taking your own personal experiences and gaps that you're finding either in your experiences of care or your um, desire to do a activity of life, i.e. become a parent, or your desire 
um, to continue to improve and and uh, improve yourself that you've you've never stopped that and that those personal experiences then driving this really deep curiosity that's led you back to a PhD that's that's so cool so your PhD is that mixed methods as well you're talking about like a tracking tool is that some sort of like digital thing is that like um, measuring like electronic activity and muscle groups like tell us what 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 are you what are you doing right so my PhD is broken down into five different sort of mini projects I'm saying mini they're not really mini um, so the first project I did was a scoping review just so we can understand all the characteristics of activity-based therapy from the mm -hmm. literature um, the different, so really looking at all the different types of um, activity-based therapies or exercises that that would fall under that umbrella and um, some of the parameters that are being used for tracking those activities. So an example would be like treadmill training would be one example and okay. parameters for that would be like walking speed, um, body, you know, the body weight support because people would be on a treadmill and have some uh, offloading, depending on whether they need mm -hmm. it or not, um, walking direction, you know, um, whether it's on a on an angle or not. So those okay. are some of the parameters that um, that that would be used for tracking the, the duration, right? The number of minutes that you spend yep. on the treadmill or distance traveled. So those are things that you would use as parameters for tracking that particular exercise. Um, so then my next um, project really focused on interviewing um, different groups of people. So I interviewed um, therapists, I interviewed people living with spinal cord injury, I interviewed um, hospital administrators, and a therapist, uh, actually I should say both hospital and community administrators, as well as hospital and community therapists, um, researchers, and then I had this, this other bucket which included like um, funders, advocates, and policy experts. Oh, so I interviewed wow. all of them to get their perspective on activity-based therapy and, um, and, and um, the importance of tracking ABT and what they thought was important to track um, and ways of tracking it. Okay. And um, once we did that, um, we used the information from both the scoping review as well as the focus group interviews to create a Delphi survey so we can ah. then get um, a broad range of individuals from all of these groups, but a much larger number mm -hmm. to agree on what were the key activities that they thought would be important to include in a tracking tool. Um, and so then that data was used to actually develop our tool and we took the parameters from our scoping review to um, build into our tool. And mm -hmm. then my last study was doing a content validity testing on the tool. Um, so we actually had three different clinics from across Canada use the tool in practice yeah. um, and had both people with spinal cord injuries, so the clients that they had, as well as the therapists um, use it. And then um, uh, we did interviews with them to get their feedback on it and find out, you know, how the tool was and um, any suggestions that they had for how to improve it. So oh, that's wow. sort of the stage where we're at now. My next stage, which would be post-PhD, um, we are recognizing that uh, they would definitely prefer the tool as an app 
it seems mm. to be the more preferred wet wet method. So right now it's just a paper-based uh, yeah. version of the tool, uh, but we will be looking at developing it into an app and then maybe looking at doing some intraday reliability testing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea would be to hopefully have it an app so we could have a, a a facility where we could have a database to collect information across many centers. And that will help to get us the um, the data that we need to answer some of these questions. So your research then has been more focused around coming up with a way to evaluate this particular type of therapy. Now in Canada, is this type of therapy something that any patient who's had a spinal cord injury can access or is it something that um, that's covered underneath the healthcare system or is it something that like you have to pursue privately? Yeah, so I mean, even just in the last, so I've been involved with activity-based therapy now for 10 years, um, but just in the last four to five years of my PhD, I've definitely started to see it growing in Canada. Mm-hmm. Originally, it was really only available through these um, private um, community-based clinics that were few and far between across Canada, so not even every province had one. Oh, wow. um, and they were privately funded. Um People had to pay out of pocket unless they had insurance. And even still, the insurance was only helpful if that clinic had a physiotherapist on site. So a lot of these community-based clinics operate with um, kinesiologists um, or okay. exercise-based trainers. Yeah. Some of them have physiotherapists on site where you can access insurance. Um, but every country is different. So um, and, and insurance coverage is different. So it really depends yes. across... But we are starting to see it getting um, picked up in our rehab centers now, which is great. Um, that the key issue I would say is dosage. Um, mm. Because of lack of funding within our hospital-based systems, they're not able to achieve the dosage really needed for recovery. Okay. But we are yeah. at least seeing the um, the activities um, that are needed and the targeting of these areas below level of injury starting to happen in our in our hospitals. And now we really just have to start advocating for ways of increasing the dosage. Okay, interesting. So your research then through doing it and also the, the research probably in the area, is that then the fact that it's growing, um, do you think that that's because slowly more and more, even if it's just like individuals like yourself speaking up and being like, hey, this really changed my life. Do you feel that it's starting to mount to say that this is a beneficial therapy? Yeah, so there is, um, I mean, there is a growing body of research now that's showing the benefits of even certain certain types. Because I mean, umbra- the umbrella of activity-based therapy includes many different exercises you know it includes treadmill training ergometer training even muscle strengthening but muscle strengthening below level of injury so there is data out there that's showing benefits in different groups of people um and so that is becoming more widely recognized and uh it's helping with the implementation aspects into broader you know more community-based centers as well as um implementation into our rehab hospitals um, and, this really sort of got birthed in the United States, so it's okay. a much bigger, um, a much bigger field within the United States. But 
um, between Canada, Australia, and Europe, it's it's really starting to slowly grow. Well, and I think for me, then, that's the real power, then, of the work that you've done developing this tool that had input from so many different groups of individuals, because it will then, like like you said, even in how you developed your tool, translate between doing focus groups, which are an important part and a, and a step along the way, but making it into something that then can be, you can gather like into that Delphus to gather that same information, but from a much bigger group of people without having to interview 459 million individuals. And then now you're you're going further and starting to to test your tool for its content validity. And, you know, as long as all of that goes well, you're looking then at now being able to offer to all of these centers and other researchers a, a validated, um, well-developed way of capturing change in individuals with spinal cord injury, regardless of their type of injury. Um, or the level of their injury, but a way to track progress as a result of their activity-based therapy. Yeah, and actually, I would I would actually say it's really more of a point of documentation tool. So it's okay. really more capturing what are people doing within their sessions. So what exercises are they working on? Um, what's how much time are they spending on each of those exercises? What's the parameters of the dosage that they're doing, so the intensity that they're working at, and um, what equipment are they using. Um, but to your point, if they're filling out this form every single session, you will also be able to track progress over time. So it really has like, it's sort of like a two-in-one, um, mm. but it's really important that we just know what are people doing, because okay. that will help us to determine, you know, which exercises are really giving the biggest bang, you know, for the, for the bunch. And then also, um, what's the dosage? That's the key. Um, and what's the intensity that's needed to trigger that recovery? Yeah, so, I, I, that's, I really like how you've described that because I think for me and going back to like when I did my master's around spinal cord injury, which was like donkeys ago, <laughs> so long ago, one of the things I really struggled with is how personal spinal cord injuries are. And so to have big randomized controlled trials, um, your sample, even if you say, okay, we're only going to have people that have an injury between um, T1 and T4, you're still going to have a really heterogeneous sample within that you're not going to like so many other diseases if you say right we're going to do people with type 2 diabetes that are both with that are any gender that are this age group that don't have more than three comorbidities you narrow all of those confounding factors down but within spinal cord injury um you know showing that something works i found really really a, a hard thing to wrap my head around because even if you have, like like you said, your friend who had pretty much the same injury as you, you know, you had two very different outcomes in that she had sensation and you didn't, even though your injury was 
on you the pandemical. Been, you would have been in the same, like you would have been grouped into the same group, but have two very different um, realities post-injury. So I think how you're describing it, that's a really interesting way of doing it, is actually documenting what people are doing regardless of their heterogeneity and seeing whether or not, regardless of that heterogeneity, something comes floats to the surface as being the most effective. So if that turns out to be ergonomic work or whether that turns out to be, you know, one to one, you know, intensive, like you were saying, like the, the vertical planking or, you know, whatever it is, you'll in time hopefully be able to get a better idea of dosaging exercises that would have greater impact regardless of injury type is that am, am I getting what you're doing right is that absolutely yeah okay. I mean you're so right like the spinal cord injury uh community is so heterogeneous so when you are doing research there are so many confounding variables like you said that can influence it but if we have a tool that's available where everyone is collecting the same information and all into a database you can actually be able to start to see patterns yeah. of like, well, you know, someone with um, an injury in the thoracic area that's incomplete, these are the types of exercises at this intensity that seems to produce the best results. Whereas if it's someone with a cervical injury, you know, and it's a complete level of injury, these bundle of exercises seem to be the best for them. Yeah. So that's really, you know, what we want to get is we really, because it is going to be more of a customizable type of program but we may be able to see patterns that suit certain injury profiles Um, and that's what really it's going to come down to is how do we maximize recovery for a certain a person that presents in a certain way versus someone else and what is that dosage that's gonna that's going to be you know the key to to get those results Um, so we're hoping that this tool will do that that's so fascinating what like an incredible phd set of mini (laughs) mini projects that's that's incredible um just if I can be so bold is a lot of your research to date has been whether it was during your master's um and within your PhD it's been qualitative in nature and I mean, even though there was a mixed methods component, you spend a lot of time doing focus groups and interviews and, and things like that. Now, all I can remember in research methods class being taught being taught about that insider outsider perspective when you're doing um, qualitative methods because you know who you are and what your experiences are even even without any sort of major health crises or or um injury you still take who you are into that interview have you found because of your own spinal cord injury and being a um, developing researcher within spinal cord injury have you found that that has been Um, your own experience I mean we've talked a bit about how it's inspired it but when it comes to like doing your analysis or 
or proposing the research or doing the research yourself, have you found that that has been something that has made things harder or do you actually find it opens different doors than what um, a non-spinal cord injured researcher might have might have experienced? Yeah, that's a great question. And I can tell you that when I first started my master's, which now was back in you know, 2000 to 2004 to 2008, um, I felt I got a lot of resistance from the research community where they looked that they looked towards me as a researcher, being a very biased researcher because of my lived experience. And it's interesting to see this shift now because there's been this whole movement, and I'm not sure if you've been getting it in Europe about, um, integrated knowledge translation and having people with lived experience um, meaningfully engaged in research and recognizing that it's actually a positive rather than a negative and can actually enhance the quality of the research and Mm. lead to research with a greater impact, more meaningful research. And so it's interesting to see now how my lived experience is viewed as a strength as opposed to an hindrance in the project. And part of like where you, where you say, you know, how we've included multiple groups, it's not just people with lived experience of spinal cord injury, but it's recognizing that doing research with the research users, like end users mm-hmm. of your research is so important to include them in the research, getting their perspective, because that's really what's going to get you the best data, the best answers and the greater impact in the end. Well, well so, not just impact. I would also say um, that implement that implementation science side of it as well, because y- you could create from a user, like from a, a person with spinal cord injury perspective, you could create the best tool in the world to track um, this therapy and changes that happen to you as a participant in that therapy. You could have, you know, the most amazing tool in the world. But if your physical therapists are like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Um, and your um, like your policymakers are like, this is too expensive and it doesn't tell us anything that we value anyway, then it's not going to get you. So I think and, and that's more why I asked the question. And, and you said you've you've said that you're starting to see the shift because similarly in the year in Europe we call it um, patient patient and public involvement and engagement here. And it's basically now a requirement in any research project. You have to have uh, a degree of documented input from relevant user groups, but. Well, you've talked about how you're seeing the shift from other people, from your own experience. Has there been, similarly, has there been a shift for you or have you always been like, well, of course I should do research about this because it affects me um, kind of thing. How's your own personal journey been with that, that, you know, struggle with bias? Like, especially I think around, you know, this activity-based therapy or even the parenting thing, like you went into it with, um, a hope 
Even if you didn't believe it, like, so I'll, I'll go with the activity-based therapy because that's your, your PhD and more the research we've been spending more time. You know, you said yourself, you're like, I've been neurologically stable. I doubt anything's going to get changed, but why not? Let's give it a go. Um, you know, did you yourself in, in like quiet moments to yourself sit there and think, is this just placebo effect? Am I, you know, so hopeful at, at, achieving change that these experiences are more about like the power of my brain versus the power of my body or you know because you're a researcher you were able to much more objectively analyze your experiences because you know the difference between that um, subjective and objective data like what was your own personal experience through that journey yeah I was I I think because I'd already been involved in research, I came at it with a very critical lens. Um, and uh, I really tried to put myself outside the box. Um, and so I, I was very uh, critical and very um, a- attuned to the changes. And, I, and it's funny because even when I do my therapy now, um, if we're trying new exercises, I'll say, I cheated. I know I cheated. I was using compensatory muscles or whatever to do this movement. And so I'm, I'm very critical of myself and how I'm doing it because I really want to make sure that what benefits I'm seeing is a real benefit versus a compensation. Mm. Um, but, but, but no, like I was blown away because I knew that there were things happening. And what's even more interesting is like, I'll give you an example. Like I would do sit-ups. And initially, you know, I, I mean, sit-ups to whatever extent I could, which was more like lifting my head and my shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, and my therapist would be tapping on my abdominal muscles because for me, I knew where my abdominals were. Like it's uh, one of the big things with activity-based therapy, it's a lot of mental effort because you're mentally trying to connect to these muscles below your level of injury. So the best analogy I can come up with, it's almost like, going into a dark room and filling along the wall for the light switch. You kind of know where it is, but not exactly. So I knew where my abdominal muscles were, but I couldn't connect to them. Mm. But after doing like many sit-ups, like, so the, one of the big key things with activity-based therapy is repetition, 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 right? And so I would do like 50 sit-ups with the therapist tapping on my abdominal muscles and eventually, I would start to feel like I was connecting to that muscle. Um, and I would feel like I was contracting the muscle. Now, whether I actually was or not, I don't know. But I would get that, that, that feeling and sensation that I was connecting to the muscle and contracting it. And what was interesting is over time, as I would do many, many sit-ups over the course of my the weeks and months, I would actually start to get a flicker of movement that the, okay. that the therapist could actually palpably feel. Yeah. So it started first with sensation and the yeah. sensory feeling of like uh, a connection and then a, a, a feeling of a contraction of the muscle. Yeah. But eventually it would get to the point that the therapist would actually feel and be able to palpate a contraction. That's, um, that's, that just sounds incredible. Yeah. And even like things like, um, 
with my legs. Like if I'm sitting in my wheelchair, if I put a hot plate on my lap, I'll get a sensation of deep heat. Um, so not if I if if you touched something hot to my leg, I wouldn't feel it. But I feel it. I feel deep heat. I feel deep pressure below my level of injury. So I've had sensation changes as well. Wow. Yeah. So this sounds like a really potentially powerful therapy that could offer um, improvements in people's quality of life if it were to be, one, we know what to do, we know the dose to do it at, and then once we know those things and we can start cataloging the changes because of your amazing tool, um, then there probably becomes more hope, I would guess, with it becoming at least to some degree more implemented within more rehabil- spinal cord rehabilitation centers around the world. Yeah. You know, the, the best thing that I have right now is rehab never ends. So <laughs> I've, I've sort of realized that over the years that, you know, people will get injured, they'll go through rehab. And now it's like, it's gone from like a year at my time down to like just a few months, right? But rehab doesn't end once you leave rehab. Um, there, you know, progress can occur continuously over time, but you have to invest that time into it. Mm-hmm. Um, Just like research. <laughs> Yes, I think that should be that should be the slogan for this episode is both rehab and research never end. <laughs> There's always something that you can be doing. There's always another question to ask. That's brilliant. Um, I'm just conscious of the time because it's it's been a little over an hour now. Um, I'm going to wrap things up, but just. Thank you so much for coming and sharing both your personal journey as well as your journey through research and the research that you are um, working on at the minute. Um, Afterwards, in an email, if you can send us some links of any publications, um, both from your master's work as well as uh, your PhD work. So if somebody out there listens to this and is like, oh my goodness, I need to find out more about this because my uncle Bob um, has had a spinal cord injury or whatever, um, that they can then get pointed to the right sort of place. So if you can drop that in an email to me. Before I wrap things up more, do you have any last comments or words or uh, inspiring things to say to other people out there to get them involved in research like you've been involved in research? Um, so I'd love to say to the spinal cord injury community that if we want to see change happen, get involved. And you don't have to be, you don't have to go to school to be a researcher. There's so many ways, like even within my research team, I've included a couple of people with spinal cord injuries on the team. So it's not just my perspective, but it's other perspectives of other individuals that are making decisions, but you can get involved in fundraising for research. You can get involved in helping to disseminate the research that's um, been out there. Um, You can help promote research. You can help, um, you know, be involved as a participant on a research study. So there's a lot of different ways to get involved, but, get involved. Love it. Love it. Thank you 
so much for joining us and giving us your time. I'll put all of the links and stuff in the description. And for everybody out there who's been listening, thank you so much for listening to the Researcher Revealed podcast. Remember to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for either myself or for Anita about her research or research in general, just drop it in the comments on YouTube and um, we'll pick it up and make sure it gets to the right person. And for now, that is us. And like Anita said so wisely, just get involved in research. We all have things that we want to know more about. And the only way to find out the answers to our questions is to just dive in. So thanks so much for listening. And I look forward to our next episode in three more weeks. Don't go away. Up next, we have the top three takeaways from this week's podcast by Dr. Rosalind Austin. I'm so grateful that Anita was willing to come and share her journey with us. Um, I've had the privilege of knowing her since early 2000s, and she's been a long-standing source of inspiration for me um, into the persistence and the research that she does and her passion around research. Um, and it was really good today to, to get to share and have her share her journey with you as well. Um, my top three takeaways. Um, first one for me is uh, her reason for doing research. And for me, I think the reason why it's my top takeaway is because it's the same reason I really got into research and why I love research so much is that research is the opportunity to always be new and always be exciting. And that can be a source of frustration sometimes, but you don't end up doing the mundane same thing every day. There's always something, a new paper to read, a new type of research to explore, a new method to try. There's always something new and exciting around research. And so I think, again, just as a bit of a kickstart to the new year, um, just yeah, that research can is new and exciting. And so it's a great reason to get involved in it. Um, her second, my second top takeaway is um, because of her personal circumstances, um, she had to go away from being a researcher and her own research development as she was a mum of a young, a young child. And, you know, I think we always and in, in lots of conversations that I've had with lots of different people, there's always a concern of if I stop doing it, will I lose my skills? Will I, you know, not be able to, you know, needing to take a break, maybe, you know, stepping back because of personal health or family reasons or whatever. And I think, you know, she found a way to make that work and she kept connected to research because she still needed to be employed. So she kept working as a research assistant, even though her own personal research and her pursuit of a PhD, she put on pause so that she could focus on her family. And so I think for me, that's, that's the second real big takeaway around research is that there's multiple ways to ensure that you stay connected to the research world and that research environment. And you don't necessarily need to be actively 
leading on a grant. You can be involved in lots of different ways, regardless of who you are, your level of education or your career pathway on becoming a researcher. So I found that I found that really inspiring. Um, and my third top takeaway is something that I think is, was really interesting, and we talked about it a little bit at the end, is this idea of bias and the insider versus outsider perspective, especially when it comes to qualitative research. And Anita was kind enough to share with us that, you know, when she first started doing some of her master's work, people really looked down on her and um, were saying that she would never be a good researcher because her lived experience would bias her work. And now with time, um, the perspective has changed so much and all around the world, more and more researchers are being encouraged to actively pursue and get individuals on a research team with the lived experience of the condition or whatever the focus of that research is in order to help with making sure that it will have better impact, it will be better to implement and all of all of those other sorts of things. And so she herself has lived that journey and seen how that transition has happened in, in the world's view around what makes you a good researcher. But also I found really interesting is with her in her own personal journey, not just how the world viewed her, but her own personal journey, she recognized because of how she sees the world differently because she has a spinal cord injury and she's doing research on spinal cord injury, she recognized and built into her PhD to the, the capturing the views of people who don't have injuries, the therapists, the, um, the policy makers, and, and all of those different types of perspectives in order to strengthen her tool and to hopefully increase its impact and increase its uh, probability of being implemented. So not only has her own, her own perspective as somebody with a spinal cord injury altered and drove her curiosity to, to delve into this area of research, but it's also helped her see that those different perspectives are really valuable to inform really good research. And so I thought, I thought that was really powerful is, is you know, embrace, embrace who you are. Yes, it's important to recognize that that might alter how you view things. But, you know, as Anita said, she actually found that it made her much more critical of her own experience rather than being willing to just believe anything that promised her hope. And so, you know, keep that critical view, but embrace who you are and take that with you into your research and use those different perspectives to make your research even stronger. That's it for me on this episode. It was a really special episode for me because like I said, um, Anita has been a friend for quite a long time. And I've known about her research and I was really keen to to share her experiences with the rest of you. Um, let me know what you thought about this. Do you want me to try and find other people who, like Anita, have got that condition that they're researching or that have experienced that phenomenon that they're interesting? Um, yeah, let me know what you think in the comments. Um, remember to subscribe uh, to the YouTube channel um, and to subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice, whichever way you choose to listen to it. And yeah.
Thank you so much for listening and thank you for all of the likes and the reviews for everybody who's been leaving reviews on the podcasting platforms. That's really great and very exciting to see. Um, And I look forward to the next episode. I already know who it is Um, and it's going to be another great one. So stay tuned. Um, Hit the notification bell on your uh, podcasting platform of choice or on YouTube to make sure that you don't miss the next episode in another three weeks. Take care for now. And remember, follow Anita's advice. Just dive in, get involved. You don't have to have a PhD to get involved in research. Um, And whether it's spinal cord injury, whether it's heart failure, whether it's diabetes, whether it's whatever, get involved with the research because it's the only way that we're going to be able to drive knowledge forward and to change people's experiences. Thank you so much for listening.